You're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and today we are looking back at two interviews that we conducted earlier in the year, two conversations that we had with two incredible authors. We have a lot of conversations on this podcast where we typically render a lot of reading recommendations from our librarians, or we're discussing various bits of pop culture. It could be movies, it could be manga, graphic novels, video games, what have you, usually centered around things that we circulate out of this library here in Ferndale. But we also have authors that come to the podcast to talk about their books. And earlier in the year, we had Britt Bennett as a guest. Britt Bennett was born and raised in Southern California and earned her MFA in fiction at the University of Michigan. Her debut novel, The Mothers, was a New York Times bestseller. Her follow-up and second novel, The Vanishing Half, was an instantaneous number one New York Times bestseller. And her essays have been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and The Paris Review. The Vanishing Half was a work of fiction about twin sisters, the Vines twins. After growing up together in a small southern black community and running away at age 16, It's not just the shape of their daily lives that is different as adults, it's everything. Their families, their communities, their racial identities. Many years later, one sister lives with her black daughter in the same southern town she once tried to escape. The other sister secretly passes for white, and her white husband knows nothing of her past. Still, even separated by so many miles and just as many lies, the fates of the twins remained intertwined. The book is about what will happen to the next generation when their own daughter's storylines intersect. Let's listen back to our conversation with Britt Bennett. And following that, we'll have another interview featuring author Mohsin Hamid. Are still talking about and still want to be talking about yeah, I think it's it's pretty surreal. Yeah. Um, it feels like, on one hand, that it hasn't been that much time since the book came out. On the other hand, it feels like it's been a really long time. Right. Um, so it is uh, surreal that people are still interested in reading this book and so interested in talking about it. But of course, something that you're very grateful for as an author that uh, you have some type of staying power. Right, right, right. And 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 you you teach creative writing. I don't know if this this is this isn't anything that you can plan for, right? You're not you can't really sit down in your laboratory and say I am going to write a brilliant novel that everyone will be talking about. It just happens. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I don't I don't take it for granted because I think so many amazing books come out every year, and there's so many incredible books that just don't uh, have the attention or the publicity or the timing is is strange. Or, sure. You know, there's so many factors outside of your control as an author. So if it happens for you that your book catches fire in some way, it is such a rare um, and amazing gift. And it's something that I think you you just can't take for granted. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, I have set up what this book, Vanishing Half, is about in our intro to this podcast, and I know a lot of people have read it already, so I want to kind of dive into something, and hopefully it's not too much of an abstract angle, but um, can you talk about what you find compelling about this old adage, you can never go home again? I feel like uh, with Desiree and and Nadia in in Vanishing Half and the mothers, respectively, and to a somewhat more hyper-specific extreme case with Stella, there is this this palpable experience of what it is like to return. It's not like any of these characters left for similar reasons or common reasons, but there is such a compelling drama that a reader might resonate with as these characters make their returns. So I just wanted to start with that idea of the return. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm always really interested in um, sort of, I guess, ambivalent feelings or complicated feelings about home. And I think that that's true in those both those books as you described it. Um, but I knew also, as soon as I started writing The Vanishing Half, I always knew that the beginning of the book would start with Desiree returning because she's not only returned after everything that she's experienced and returned as kind of this different person, but she also returns with this child. And it's perhaps the presence of her child that causes the most uh, sort of, you know, gossip and concern throughout the town. So I am interested, I think, in the idea of, of returning to a home that you thought you escaped and finding yourself changed, but also finding that place changed in ways that you perhaps did not expect. Yeah. And you write so beautifully and compellingly about how, as you said, that word complex, complex, our emotions can be. There's themes of identity and even even like the death of a self and the vanishing half and, and then an exploration of guilt and shame and what warrants those feelings and the mothers. And sometimes those become intertwined with identity as well. Um, I just what what drew you to those those themes? Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. What drew you to those themes and, and what, what do you find fulfilling about exploring them? And, and the other wonder is how you were able to take such heavy subjects and turn them into page turners. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think I am always really interested on these, these questions of identity and, and transformation and how we become who we become. So I think that that was always a starting point for the vanishing half was thinking about these identical twins who decide to make very different choices and the implications that that has on their lives and, and the rest of their family. So I don't know. I think I'm always just really fascinated by those types of stories about characters who are making these big choices and we're moving from one complex situation to another. And I just wanted to explore that in a way that would be beautifully written, hopefully, um, but also that would be a compelling read um, and would be something that would, uh, yeah, that would, would, that people would want to read to find out what happens next. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautifully written, achieved. Um, <laughs> what, what, el what also draws you to uh, these immersive portrayals of family dynamics, mothers, sisters, um, and without, without spoiling Vanishing Half, it is, it is not a spoiler to say that that these twins leave their town of, of Mallard and, and subsequently leave their mother. But without spoiling it, there is a sentiment that at least one sister expresses in words to the mother at the end of that book, a deeply relatable feeling of a sort of a gratitude that we have for our family or a gratitude that's hopefully accessible. Can you talk about the drama and, and the catharsis that can be, that can come with exploring family relationships, be they full of gratitude or perhaps broken by tragedy? or brash impulse or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think this idea of loving your family but desperately wanting to escape them is something that a lot of people can relate to. <laughs> um, and being grateful for the closeness of family but sometimes feeling claustrophobic within it, um, I think that's something that a lot of us can sort of relate to. So um, the idea that these characters often feel like they need to leave family and home behind in order to become themselves, I think, um, is something that is kind of goes between both books. Um, but yeah, it's something that I, I find interesting, the way that these bonds are so formative and so important in our lives, but also can feel like they stifle us and can feel like they prevent us from being the people that we want to be. And that who, if to find out who we want to be, we kind of have to leave them. But there's always a cost to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just per pe capture it so perfectly how complex it can be. Just 
who is this sibling? Who are these people? They're connected to me. I love them, but I have mixed feelings about them. It's <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, and then let's talk about this. What was it like, uh, or what has it been like? I was talking about these last eighteen months of of talking about this book, and you know, if you if you look, look back at some of the the interviews you were doing, it it was almost like tuning into an interview with you was tuning into the news. You had to be responding to to so much. It was such such a tumultuous time. Your first book came out on the eve of what was, you know, such a turbulent election, turbulent election season, turbulent administration. Your next book, which explores race, comes out on the eve of the Black Lives Matter kicking into such a higher gear. So I guess I might be naive, but I feel like the somewhat perfunctory press tour of authors doesn't always necessarily have to be so intertwined with either politics or heightened social tensions of the day. But you had such such grace and poise and were so engaging in all those interviews. I guess I'm just asking, what was it like for you as an author and a human? And what did you take away from it all? I think maybe it is good that we we look to our authors during such turbulent times, but you just wanted to celebrate a book at the same time. It was Yeah, I mean, honestly, it it makes me uh, afraid for what book three is going to unleash (laughs) on the world. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I think going into Vanishing Half, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be another like election cycle uh, of that would be like the discourse surrounding the book. And of course, had no idea that it would be no, it's a global pandemic and also uh, a period of sort of racial unrest. So Mm -hmm. You know, you never know the circumstance surrounding your book or, or you know, if you think about people who, you know, just happen to have books coming out in 2020 that were about pandemics and, and the weird timing of these types of things. Right. So you really know, never know the context. But I think, you know, looking back, I think it was very overwhelming to deal with the attention that was on the book and the attention that was on me. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, going through a pandemic where I was quarantined alone. So having this public life that was very suddenly very public, um, but my private life was suddenly very alone. Um, And I think that was something that was really dissonant and really strange. Mm -hmm. And all of that happening amid these protests um, where people were uh, sort of demanding that I um, explain or comfort or, speak to the moment and in some way that I, I felt overwhelmed by doing because I was still trying to process the moment myself. Sure. So looking back, it was a pretty wild and overwhelming time. Um, but at the same time, I felt so grateful to have this book kind of keep me afloat during what was such a like a rough period because, yeah. you know, it felt like everybody's futures were kind of just disappearing in front of us. But I had something to look forward to. You know, I had something that I knew, okay, this book is coming out in June. Right. I don't know what the world's going to be like in June, but this right. book is supposed to be coming out. Right. And had the experience of the book's um, success at a time where it was life was so hard for everybody. So I feel grateful for that. But also looking back, it was a really overwhelming time to kind of emerge in this different way publicly that I was um, pretty unprepared for, I think. Yes, but still, such grace, such poise. I know you've taught creative fiction. You should also teach a class on what happens in case you get famous as an author. Um, you can be ready <laughs> for it. Uh, two more quick questions, and they're a little more selfish. We're talking to you from inside of a library, and I just wanted to hear about your origins as a writer, which I presume maybe starts with being an avid reader, of course, but perhaps stays with you as an author. You're probably doing lots of research for your book. You read a lot. 
did libraries play a big role in your childhood? Have they remained a prominent part of your life? Do you have any appreciations to share about libraries? Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely started as a reader at the public library. My first job actually in high school was at the public library, shelving books. Great. Um, and I worked at the library when I was in college too. I worked at the music library, um, which I had absolutely no qualifications to do that. But I, um, I, I worked I at did the music my library too. Yeah, I did my best. Um, but I, you know, so yeah, I've had a lot of a lot of my life that's been that's been spent in libraries. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful for those spaces of just a space to explore and wander and think. Um, and I certainly don't think I would have been a writer without the experience of being able to go to my public library. Oh, that's wonderful. And they're open back up now and people are coming back safely. So that's good. Yes. Um, we are also, we're also recording to here from Michigan and Michigan features fairly prominently in, in the mothers as it does somewhat at least in your life since you were here in Michigan do you have any memories or sentiments about the state to share or your time here <laughs> yeah I mean I had such a fun time at grad school I mean honestly it was one of the best times of my life I think I had um it was one of the first times where I met other writers and had friends who were writers and I just saw one of my uh, two of my friends from grad school this past weekend in Minnesota and we had so much time just talking and reflecting on how lucky we were to have the time to just write and and hang out in Ann Arbor. So I have I have a lot of really fond memories. I haven't I haven't been back for a few years, but I have a lot of really fond memories of of life in Michigan. That's great. Uh, do you have any? Again, we harped on this. This book is came out eighteen months ago. Are you working on anything right now? Have you been able to concentrate, focus? How's how's writing going lately? Um. Yes, I'm working on something right now. How's writing going lately? That's a different question. Um, <laughs> it's not going great, but I am working. Um, yeah, I'm working on a new project and it's, you know, I'm at the point of revising it where I need to just make some hard decisions and decide uh, kind of where, you know, the fun of drafting where you're just doing whatever you feel like doing and exploring. Like I think I've kind of passed that phase. I need to make some make some hard decisions and I'm uh, sort of reluctant to do so perhaps but um, but yeah but it's it's challenging but I think I'm excited to be working on a book that's very different than the vanishing half and the mothers and I think it's always fun to explore a new fictional world and and to be kind of in this point of wrestling with a with a new story it's humbling and it's also fun. And that was our chat with Britt Bennett, author of The Vanishing Half, as well as The Mothers. Our next conversation is with author Mohsin Hamid, a Pakistani-born, internationally best-selling author of books like The Reluctant Fundamentalist, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, Exit West, and his latest, The Last White Man. The Last White Man, which came out in 2022, offers a provocative take on privilege, grief, and transformations. Its main character, Anders, wakes up one morning to, to discover that he is dark. When he went to bed the night before, he was white. He tells his girlfriend, Una, and together they navigate a world where this predicament is beginning to spread. Reports of similar events begin to surface in this work of speculative fiction. Across the land, people are awakening in new incarnations, uncertain how their neighbors, friends, and family will greet them. Some see the transformations as the long-dreaded overturning of the established order that must be resisted to a bitter end. In many, like Anders' father and Una's mother, 
a sense of profound loss and unease wars with profound love. As the bond between Anders and Una deepens, change takes on a different shading, a chance at a kind of rebirth, an opportunity to see ourselves face-to-face anew. Here's our chat with Mohsin Hamid, author of The Last White Man. Referring to something that lots of reviewers will inevitably refer to it, and that is the comparison to the metamorphosis. And my thought here was that 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 might be inspired only simply because there is the decision to uh, make it, uh, let's say, uh, Anders awakens on page one. It really is not a spoiler at all. It is right there on page one that Anders awakens this way. I just was curious about your decision to uh, not really beat around the bush and just get right to it. It's interesting. I think that um, you establish a relationship with a reader uh, at the beginning of a book. Um, and you say, you know, this is what this is what kind of book this is going to be. Uh, so if you were to proceed with a particular kind of book and then suddenly spring Anders' change on the reader, uh, chapter two, chapter three, there's, I think, a much bigger risk that the re- reader wouldn't come along with you. Mm-hmm. But if you begin... Uh, with change, then the reader begins with you like that. In the same way that if you meet somebody in a bar, they have a strange accent or they have a peculiar sense of humor. Um, if you see it right up in the beginning of the encounter and you choose to, see, uh, to keep speaking with them, you're comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. It suddenly happens half an hour into your conversation, you think something weird is going on. <laughs> Truly. Uh, and can you talk about the creative process for this book? Uh, I don't know if I'm misinterpreting this, but what I found to be impactful about the way that sentences are structured uh, continuously, uh, frenetically, although still calmly paced, but just kind of in this nigh run-on style, it that for me seemed to represent Anders and everyone's inner panic in a way. But could you speak to that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 very close to what I intended. Um, uh, uh, almost more than inner panic, though, I would say, um, inner sense of flux. Uh, so the way the sentences in the book work is that um, there's there's two th- different things going on. One is in in sentences we move between points of view within the same sentence. So we'll be Anders going to meet his father, and then we're thinking about Anders's father meeting Anders. And then we're looking out and sort of zooming from an omniscient point of view, looking at both of them. And all that's happening in one sentence. And so part of what is being done there is the reader is becoming comfortable with the idea of perspective changing, of, of there being a kind of fluid, fluid point of view. And then in each sentence, what tends to happen is, you know, something is said, and then it's qualified and qualified some more. And I think that's how human life is. You know, um, we have a point of view, we sort of express it. And as soon as we've said it, we think that's not quite right. Uh, Maybe it's more like this. And then the next day we think about the issue some more and we think more about it. Um, So each sentence is kind of starting with something and alighting and evolving. And and that sentence work of of saying, look, our points of view change um, and what we believe changes. Uh, that formal work is, is I guess, uh, related to, to something which uh, I, I remember when I was a young man about 30 years ago, I took a, uh, had an enormous cosmic good fortune of taking a creative writing class with Toni Morrison. 
And uh, yeah, it was one of these sort of uh, uh, later on, you think that was really kind of winning a lottery ticket. At the time, you're thinking, oh, you know, great writer, but you don't fully appreciate just how lucky you are. And this is about 30 years ago. And, and she said in that class, um, uh, you know, try to keep your reader a half heartbeat ahead of the action of your novel so that um, they don't know what's coming next. But when it comes, it feels inevitable. Mm-hmm. And, and so your question about sentences and how they work is that um, if the sentences uh, can do some of the work of changing points of view and, and allowing beliefs to evolve over time, um, they're doing some of the underground work required, hopefully, for the reader to make it through the novel and have an experience that's a bit like that, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk about how what the bridge might be between your your motivations from Exit West to here? Because if you go back to Exit West, uh, a lot of people interpret elements of magical realism there as well. And then that book is dealing with uh, refugees and this element of, I guess, what happens to society when it has this element of disruption. There's a lot of disruption in this book as well and a little bit of magical realism as well. Um, that's a long way of saying, where did the idea from this book for this book come from? Well, at a certain level, when I was a kid, I loved science fiction and fantasy. I grew up uh, in California in the 70s for part of my childhood. And this was the era of, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and um, Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers. Um, and as a young reader, I was in love with, you know, Tolkien and Frank Herbert and the great sort of science fiction and, and uh, fantasy writers. Uh, I was also, as a little kid, um, I, had a, I was prone to sort of playing make-believe. I would, you know, imagine that I was a pirate or an astronaut or whatever just like my 10-year-old son today can sometimes be heard roaring down the uh, hall thinking he's Godzilla. <laughs> and, uh, and so I suppose that element of not quite reality has always been very tempting to me. Uh, I also think that um, it's a mistake to believe that reality actually exists. So, um, you know, the color blue or red or yellow, we know that that color doesn't actually exist. Instead, our brain is representing a, particularly, a particular reflected frequency of light and using this color as a way of signifying to us that that's what's going on. Um, and, you know, the chairs that you and I are sitting on, we know it's mostly empty space with just some atoms scattered across it. It's not really solid in, in, when you get down to looking at it closely enough. And we also know that very often we'll do things that strike us as, um, you know, nasty or, or not in keeping with our characters. And we'll say, you know, I wasn't myself, but we were ourselves. It's just that the nice person, the story that we tell about ourselves turned out not to be true in that moment. Uh, so I think that we spend so much of our lives play acting reality, pretending that um, we are who we are and the world is the way it is. And when fiction very slightly tweaks that, um, it allows us to slip into something that although it feels a little bit less real, it might feel more true, mm-hmm. which is that things are not quite how they seem. And and all the stuff that we're engaged in, a little bit of it is just pretending. That leads into race as a construct. Does Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, um, race is something that's been imagined into existence for all of us. Uh, you know, we, we arrive in a historical moment where something has been imagined. You know, it could have been 
that we said that, okay, people with A positive blood type and O negative blood type are fundamentally different and must be you know, treated in very different ways. But we didn't do that. Um, and we arrived at this sort of contemporary 21st century racial imagining, which is different from place to place. It's different in America from Britain and different in Britain from Pakistan. But, um, but it is imagined. Um, I mean, these things aren't like planets or waterfalls. They don't actually exist. So we're all kind of collectively participating in imagining this thing. And that's where I think is a kind of fertile space. You know, what if we were to imagine differently? What if we were trying to imagine our way out of it? Um, and, and the novel is really about that. It's, it's about, in a sense, imagining a way out of race, um, experiencing both a sense of loss, you know, for some characters for whom that's an enormous loss, but also a sense of opportunity for, you know, what might come into being that isn't in being when the novel starts. Yeah. Uh, and what I found to be very powerful is t towards the end of the book, not that it's a, a, again, avoiding spoilers, but you write very beautifully about the, as more and more people are changing, the memories and the memories of whiteness and the, this memory of now a distant world. Um, that's what is really powerful about this book is that where, I don't, also this was quite a quite a emotional book to read having, and I don't know when you created it, but having witnessed actual turmoil and riots on the foot of our capital and how much there is turmoil in the streets in this book uh, was, I was almost unsettling for me as a reader, but still very powerful. Uh, can you talk about just how um, uh, maybe emotional this book was for you to write uh, and that idea of the memory of whiteness? Yeah, you know, it, it was emotional. And I think, um, uh, you know, one doesn't have to, in a sense, sympathize with a worldview or something that's being lost um, to sympathize with the feeling of loss. And um, all over the world today, we see people who feel that um, their group or their way of being is, is being destabilized and in danger of being lost. And whether that's sort of a traditional Muslim perspectives in Pakistan or Britishness in Britain or, or you know, a sense of, of, of whiteness potentially in America, um, this is not a unique thing to the United States. This is something happening really in different forms all over the world. And uh, to me, it seems an inadequate response to just say, um, you know, tough luck. Um, because if we take the response of, um, you know, that's your loss, um, in a way, what we invite is a contest to say, well, um, uh, let's fight it out and to see, you know, who wins in the battle of all against all. Instead, I think it's a bit more interesting to say, uh, what if we imagine that all of these different characters are, are the heroes of their stories? Um, they imagine themselves to be the hero of a narrative with them at their center, uh, to give them the dignity of that. And then to have them experience loss in a sense, um, not, uh, not as a, as, as, um, as a, a blessing or as, um, or as a punishment, um, but as a, as a kind of personal tragedy, uh, but a tragedy out of which uh, a new kind of growth is possible. Growth, exactly that. And the beautiful thing about this book is that the change happens. Anders has a visceral reaction early in the book, even punches a mirror. 
uh, showing his new reflection. But as the book goes on, there is change and panic, but then growth. And then Anders is still Anders. Uh, so what you did with the idea of identity was very interesting in this book. There is loss, but Anders retains Anders. Una retra- retains Una. Uh, I found that to be very, um, very touching. Well, well, Anders, in a sense, becomes almost more Anders. Right. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about it is it, the, the book is a love story, and it's, 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 it's perhaps three love stories. It's a love story between Anders and Una, who um, begin kind of like they're having a fling. They both experience loss in their lives, but they're, they're drawn together. They're, they've dated in high school, but it starts off with not a very serious relationship. But as Anders changes, Una begins to see him properly and recognize him properly and actually understand who he is in a way that's attractive to her. And something similar happens for Anders with Una. But at the same time, there's uh, two other love stories, which is Anders' love for his father and Una's love for her mother, who both belong to an older generation that's grappling with this in a different way. And, uh, and so each of these characters, in a sense, is able to see each other in a way more clearly um, and, uh, and get to a place which is a deeper understanding of, of who the other person is. Uh, so, so I suppose what we would imagine is that somebody has changed in the course of the novel, become a different kind of person. Uh, maybe a little bit of that is also happening. But also people are free to be seen as the people they actually are in a different way than they were when the novel begins. Yes. Uh, and I, so I'll let you go, but I'll just end on this note by saying that, uh, yes, I'm mentioning panic and I'm mentioning turmoil in the streets, etc. But as this book goes on and it goes to its beautiful conclusion, it's a very hopeful book. I don't know if that's an accurate word for it, but it felt very mm-hmm. hopeful. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, for me, I think something that's very important is that if we um, don't allow ourselves an opportunity to be hopeful about the future, then we sort of say, okay, well, let's be pessimistic. And that only leaves one opportunity, which is let's go back to the past. Um, and so I think for all of us, it's important to try to imagine an optimistic future that, that we could actually get to, because um, it's only by doing that that we save ourselves from a kind of social societal depression um, and a vulnerability to people who say, you know, let's go back to the golden age of Islam or let's go back to Britain before immigration or America 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, I think those are dangerous pasts to, to fetishize and to think that they were so great. Uh, but but unless, you can, unless you can imagine your way to something in the future that's attractive, the only opportunity really is to go back. And that was our chat with author Mosin Hamed, and before that, we listened back to an, another interview with Britt Bennett. A couple of uh, episodes that you can find in our archives as we look back at some of our favorite episodes of the year. We thank you for tuning in to this episode where we listened back to some great moments and great conversations. This is A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library, and our music is brought to you by a local musician, John Duffy. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, or tell a friend, or you could visit ferndalefriends.org if you'd like to support this podcast. Until then, we wish you a happy new year and a safe and happy holiday.